Thanks for joining us. Talkline Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. Welcome to the podcast. You are now tuned in to this episode of our podcast. Today we are going to interview some of the greatest and most influential minds in our field. And now, please welcome your host. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And we're back. It's always an honor, always a treat to have Harvard Law Professor Emeritus Alan Avi Dershowitz. I guess one of the few people in the radio industry where you call him Alan Avi, right? But yeah, I, you and, and Joe Piscopo calls me Avi <laughs> because he comes from, you know, New Jersey, where Avi is a common name. My mother claims I was the first Avi and that everybody I was named Avi in 1938. I'm turning 85. Um, my bar mitzvah is this Shabbos, my my 72nd. Shoftim v'shotrim, titen l'cha v'chol shirecha. I got to lane it. Wow, but that's perfect for you because that's what you deal with justice and dealing with judges, right? So this is... Sedek, sedek, sedek terdo, yeah. Right, it's an important principle in the Parsha. So you've written 52 books. The latest one, the latest one was called Get Trump. And aside from being prophetic, when you were uh, born, that you were born in the Parsha of dealing with judges, you wrote this book months ago, and what you wrote about came to fruition, right? Everything has come true. Um, Mark Levin called me the Jewish Nostradamus lawyer um, because my predictions have all been right, not because I'm smarter than CNN, but because CNN makes predictions based on their wishful thinking. I make it based on my 60 years of experience without any partisan uh, influence. So in your opinion, will he be convicted? Will he go to jail? He will not go to jail. He'll be convicted, and the convictions will be reversed on appeal. He'll be convicted in New York on this Mickey Mouse horrible case that makes no sense at all, neither as a matter of law or fact, uh, but it'll be reversed on appeal. He'll be convicted in Washington. It'll be reversed on appeal. There'll be either a hung jury or an acquittal in Florida and um, probably be convicted and reversed on appeal in Georgia as well. Although it's too early to tell whether the case will actually be tried in Georgia or will be sent to the federal courts. We'll wait and see about that. Now, of all the cases, the world of pundits seem to think that the Georgia case is the most serious, your opinion. Well, it's the most serious in the sense that it has the mandatory prison term, but it's one of the weakest. Um, when you use RICO or conspiracy, it's usually a sign that you don't have a strong case. Uh, a lot of people are praising this case as novel, creative, imaginative. Those are the three words you never want to hear used if you're prosecuting the man who is running for president against the incumbent. You want the case to be solid full of precedent. You know, uh, Thomas Jefferson once put it very well. He said, for a criminal statute to be valid, uh, it has to be so clear that a reasonable man, if he reads it while running, while running, has to be able to understand it. Well, I have to tell you, I've read this indictment while sitting, and I'm not sure I understand it. I think the best way to explain this indictment is this. Let's assume hypothetically, you know, I'm going to use the Talmudic method uh, or what some people call the Socratic method. Assume for purposes of this argument that Trump was right about Georgia, that in fact there were miscounting of the votes and there were 15,000 uncounted votes and he ends up 
winning Georgia as the result of all of his protests. People would be praising him uh, for it. So the question is, was he right or wrong? But that's not the criminal law question. The criminal law question is, did he believe he was right? If he believed that the election was stolen, if he believed it was unfair, and he did these very same acts, they are not criminal because a crime, particularly conspiracy and RICO, are crimes of the mind. You have to agree, you have to intend, you have to believe. And that's why it's going to be quite difficult to prove it. Now, of course, in, in the county where it's being charged, Fulton County, it's three to one Republicans over Democrats. And so it may be a little easier to prove than it would be, say, in West Virginia, where it's the reverse. So location, location, location is everything not only in real estate, but it is as well in criminal trials. So here, here he believed that he that the election was stolen, and that's what they're going to have to prove, that, that if he believed it or if he knew it, that it wasn't stolen, and he went and said it anyway. Is that yeah. really what it's going to boil down to? I think so. Let me give you an example. I believe, and I still believe, that the Florida election was stolen from Al Gore in 2000. Remember that after the count, uh, he was 567 votes or something like that behind. I think that was a stolen election. I thought so at the time. I think so now. And I took action accordingly. You know, I challenged, you might remember, the butterfly ballot in Palm Beach County. We challenged the hanging chads. We sought to put up slates of electors. Professor Lawrence Tribe suggested that. Um, we lobbied uh, the Secretary of State and others to have a recount. We were wrong, but we all believed we were right. And nobody suggested that we did anything wrong. Indeed, I wrote a book about it called Supreme Injustice, which was a bestseller and very positively reviewed by the New York Times. So, um, you know, you, you, you can't make something a crime based on an honest mistake. And if Trump's belief in his winning was an honest mistake, he wins the case. If, on the other hand, they can prove beyond a reasonable doubt, which would be hard to do, that he actually knew he had lost the election, but just lied about it to himself. But speaking about lying, you know, it's ironic that this case, which is all about lying, begins with a lie from the prosecutor. Remember, the prosecutor looked in the eye of the television camera and said, I'm going to try this case in six months. These 19 defendants with a 95-page RICO indictment, I'm going to try it in six months. She knew she was lying. There's no case in the history of law as complicated as this one that has ever been tried within six months. If it's tried within a year, she'll be lucky. Every single one of the defendants will make motions, motions to sever from each other. Their lawyers will make motions. Their uh, lawyers will uh, have trouble agreeing on dates for the trial because when you have 40 lawyers with schedules, it's very, very difficult. So this case will take a long, long, long time to try. But why would a prosecutor begin a case involving lying with a blatant lie? She knew she couldn't try this case in six months. So what's the purpose then? What's the reason? Political purpose. She wants to try to get this case tried before the election because she knows she might lose on appeal, but she doesn't care if she loses on appeal as long as it impacts the election. Now, the problem for these prosecutors is that so far, these indictments have been impacting the election favorably to Donald Trump, at least among Republicans. Even among general voters, he's in a tie with uh, with Biden. Now, look, remember, I'm a liberal Democrat. I don't vote for Donald Trump. I vote against him. 
I want him to lose the election, but I care much more about the Constitution and about the rule of law than I do about any particular election or any particular candidate. Now, do you see anything, anybody orchestrating all this? Because there have been those that have pointed out that every time these indictments come down, it's after there's some negative story about either Biden, about Hunter Biden, and they prove it every single time. Do you see that, that there's some collusion, there's somebody orchestrating to make sure all these things happen to get the Biden family out of the news and put Donald Trump back on the spotlight? I don't think you need collusion. I think all of the prosecutors have the same goal, essentially, to get Trump. That's why I entitled my book, Get Trump, to try to prevent him from running. They want to deny us the right to vote. You may want to vote for him. I want to vote against him. That doesn't matter. Each of us has a constitutional right to cast a ballot. And no prosecutor, no judge, no juror has the right to take that away from us. And so, you know, these prosecutions, all four of them, do constitute election interference, even if they're not intended as election interference. The effect is to prevent Donald Trump from campaigning. They're claiming this case will go in January, February, March, April, just lead up to the convention. And then the New York case. And, uh, you know, he's going to be sitting in court uh, day after day, because unlike a civil case in a criminal trial, you have to actually sit in the courtroom and be there. So he won't be able to really campaign very heavily if he has to deal with the lawyers. It's not just sitting in court, just dealing with the lawyers and lawsuits and conferring with them. This takes time and energy. It saps energy. So in effect, even if the trial is pushed off, there's still a lot of work that he has to do in between. There's no question about that. And that's why if you're going to try a president, if you're going to put a presidential candidate, the man who's running against the incumbent president in the trial, you better have the strongest case imaginable. It certainly should meet the Richard Nixon standard, where it was obvious that he had you know, erased tapes, he had bribed witnesses, and everybody agreed he should be impeached or prosecuted, um, uh, even Republicans and many centrists did. Um, but today we don't have that consensus. Today, independents, some Democrats, many Republicans think these cases don't warrant prosecuting the president. You know, it was interesting. I was on a TV show just recently and somebody asked me about the indictment and I said, it's a very creative and novel indictment. And that's the last thing you want in a case where you're prosecuting a man running for president. You don't want a novel, creative indictment. You want a simple, basic indictment that is conventional. I put it very dramatically. I said that prosecutors should be C students, not A students. They should be the ones who give the routine answer and nothing new, nothing creative. You know, when they're taking an exam, they can get the A plus. But when they're writing an indictment, it should be a C indictment. We're speaking with Harvard Law Professor Emeritus Alan Avi Dershowitz's fifty second book is called Get Trump, and he predicted exactly what is happening. Now you mentioned a few moments ago, Alan, that you know you you're a Democrat and you yeah. you would like to see Trump defeated. So if there will be election held today, Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, I guess you would vote for Joe Biden, correct? I would. I would do it with some reluctance. Uh, the reason I would vote Democrat is because I support a woman's right to choose within a certain period of time, gay rights. I support separation of church and state. I support reasonable environmental control, reasonable gun control, uh, and I support Supreme Court appointments that protect civil liberties. And so the Democrats are better on those issues. On the issue of Israel, obviously, Trump was 
excellent. I worked with him closely. I worked with Avi Berkowitz. I worked with Jared Kushner. I worked on the peace processes in the Middle East. And I know what a great job they did. I nominated three of them for the Nobel Peace Prize. I nominated David Friedman and Avi Berkowitz and Jared Kushner. They didn't get it, but they deserved it. And, and so did Donald Trump deserve it for what he did. But, you know, when you vote, you vote on a totality of circumstances. Since 1960, when I voted for John F. Kennedy, I've never voted for a president who I thought was perfect or anything near perfect. I usually vote for the lesser of the two evils or the slightly better alternative. And uh, here, I'm not thrilled with either candidate running for uh, president, uh, although they're younger than I am. I'm, I'm turning 85 next week. Uh, Happy birthday. Thank you. They're a little too old for uh, for uh, for to run the country. And I would like to see uh, younger people in charge of critical decision making. So I'm not enthusiastic about either candidate. But here's the thing, though, and I understand what you're saying about you like some of the platforms of the Democratic Party. Yeah. But, but what's happening is, though, an erosion of civil rights and you're for <laughs> rule of law and order. And here you see the Democratic legislators and you see what's going on with all these indictments and yeah. the rule of law is being thrown out and civil rights and attorney client privilege has been trampled upon. So how could you still stay a Democrat when these major, major rights, this is what your whole career is about, said, said, Care with justice you should pursue, and justice—it's just the opposite of what's happening. I agree, but I think the Republicans would do just as bad. They have. Look, some Republicans are now calling for the impeachment of Joe Biden. He hasn't committed any impeachable offenses. Um, both sides are trying to weaponize the criminal justice system. There are people on both parties uh, that are distorting civil liberties. I remain within the Democratic Party to try to get them to marginalize the. Uh, uh, people on the hard left, the woke anti-Israel people, and the people who deny civil liberties. My next book, which I'm finished with, but it isn't published yet, is called The New McCarthyism. And it's about how what's going on today, particularly from the Democrats, is worse than what the Republicans did during the old McCarthyism, because the new McCarthyites are young, and they're college students, and they're going to be our future leaders. So I am very concerned about the Democratic Party. But I'm concerned as well about the Republican Party. Right, they're concerned. But the fact is, though, is that when it comes to rule of law and what's happening with this using the justice system in a partisan way and the Department of Justice especially, so that, I think, has been taken to a degree which the Republicans haven't taken it. Well, they've taken it to a degree in a different way. I mean, the evangelicals, who I love on Israel, um, uh, would uh, deny civil liberties when it uh, affects their uh, religious uh, practices. And, um, you know, they're very right wing in many respects. They would deny uh, some of them would deny a 16 year old girl who was raped um, the opportunity to have an abortion two weeks after she became pregnant. I can't live with that. I can't accept that. Uh, but you're right. Democrats have things that uh, are, are, are in different ways, very bad as well. But, you know, I have an open mind. I made one mistake recently. I shouldn't have voted for Barack Obama the second time around. He talked me into it. He called me into the Oval Office. He promised me he would have Israel's back. I didn't realize he meant to pay, paint the target on, so Iran can drop a bomb on it. Uh, and I wish I hadn't voted for him the second time. I wish I had voted for Mitt Romney. But um, I'm going to wait and see what this election holds. But uh, at the moment, I'm sticking with my Democratic uh, principles, and I'm going to try my best to keep people like uh, Elon O'Mara and... Uh, uh, AOC and, and other radicals, uh, even from my own state, Elizabeth Warren, 
marginalized in the Democratic Party. I would not vote for the Democrats if Elizabeth Warren got the nomination or if Bernie Sanders got the nomination or if anybody who was anti-Israel got the nomination. That would be for me. So if Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders were to run against Donald Trump, that means you would vote for Donald Trump? Without, without a moment's hesitation, yeah. Talk to me, Hunter Biden, because it seems that there's a different standard of justice. That plea bargain, that plea agreement smelled to the high heavens and the judge uh, unraveled it. But how could a prosecutor even enter into such an agreement um, where you just absolve him from past crimes? It just seemed like a whitewash and it was unraveled by a judge. It was. I predicted it, um, that the uh, plea bargain would not be accepted. The reason is because we don't know what the plea bargain was. Um, we don't know whether it entailed future crimes or not. Prosecution said no. The defense said yes. If it was only for filling out a false report on gun ownership and for failing timely to pay taxes, which he ultimately paid, then the bargain was fine. But if it was done without investigating Burisma and the payments that were made on behalf of other foreign countries, then it was really a whitewash and a sweetheart deal. And that's why appointing this guy, David Weiss, to be the special counsel was a serious, serious mistake. A, it's unlawful. You have to be outside the government, not inside the government. He's inside the government. And second, you don't appoint the guy who made that deal because he's going to try to justify that deal, both consciously and unconsciously, and to create a sense that, oh, my God, it wasn't so bad after all. If they find smoking guns now, which they didn't find previously, it will look terrible for Weiss, so he would be exactly the wrong person. So to, how can they get away with that? It's uh, it's against the statute. You're not allowed to point someone from within the well, government. Congress, Congress can hold them to it. You should have hearings, I've urged that, in which Garland is, uh, is uh, subpoenaed, in which Weiss is subpoenaed, and uh, let them justify how they could make that appointment in light of all the circumstances what Garland would say is, well, he's done it for five years, so he knows all the facts, knows the law. It's just a savings of time. No, that's exactly the wrong reason for doing it. The five years resulted in this slap on the wrist. But what I understand, Garland said originally that David Weiss had all the powers to do what he needed to do. And then all of a sudden he says, I'm giving you the power to do so. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And, of course, there were whistleblowers who said that Weiss said, no, he didn't have the power. Uh, he couldn't get any cooperation from the uh, U.S. attorneys in California and in Washington, D.C. So I think the judge uh, should call, and I think the House should call these folks before them and to testify, what did he actually do? What did Weiss do? What did he investigate? He's going to say, well, it's an ongoing investigation. I can't talk. Yo, no. Congress can make you talk. This is a constitutional power that Congress has to serve as a check and balance on the excesses of the executive branch, and this sounds like an excess of the executive branch. Forgive me, but I don't think it's going to happen. I think he's going to, they're going to get away with this. I think Congress will look into it. I agree with you. I don't think the judge will look into it. I think the judge will accept the deal as modified. Now the issue is whether or not the judge even has to accept it. The lawyers, very good lawyers, by the way, for Hunter Biden, uh, are saying, well, the Justice Department and we have made a deal already on the gun charge, and the judge doesn't have to be involved in that. That's going to be an interesting question for the judge to resolve. What do you think the position is legally in that case? I think legally, legally, once the judge has been involved like this, it's hard for the judge to get out of it. I think she has to 
pass on it. And, and the Justice Department won't agree to it at this point. Uh, but the Biden lawyers are saying that it's already a signed deal. But the signed deal was based under on different circumstances and a different process. It wasn't a package deal. It's, it was all or nothing, really, right? Uh, and I think they'll. I think the. I think that the um, Biden lawyers will lose. That's my prediction. Have you been in touch with Donald Trump? No, no. I haven't been in touch with him since basically since I represented him um, a long, long time ago. After that, I did try to get some, particularly some older Jewish um, prisoners who had gotten. 75 year sentences and things like that. I, I tried very hard to get some of them commutations and I succeeded in some cases. And, well, I think and with Raboshkin, which low, but Shalom earlier. Raboshkin was earlier, but there were a few other cases uh, involving one guy who was offered a seven year sentence, turned it down, went to trial, was convicted, and got a 75 year sentence. Wow. Uh, and we got that uh, commuted to time served to the amount of time he actually served. So that was the last time. I was in touch with uh, Donald Trump. That was probably in January of 2021. But, you know, I'm not a friend. I'm not a supporter. I'm not part of his his group. The the time before that, um, I I went to the Baumeister for dinner with um, some people from some of the uh, Emirate countries. I can't give too much detail in order to try to influence them toward peace with uh, Israel. And I was happy to play that role. But he didn't reach out to you to have you represent him in current proceedings or to pick your brain? I've had lots of requests to have me represent him. But I have a rule that I represent somebody only once. I don't ever want to become consigliore to um, people who are charged repeatedly. So throughout my career, I've defended people only once. I've turned down a lot of people who wanted me to represent them for a second time. Alan Avi Dershowitz is our guest. Talk to me, Martha's Vineyard, and past broadcasts, you mentioned to me they shunned you because you represented Donald Trump and you speak your yep. mind. Has that changed? Has it gotten better gotten this summer? Worse. It's gotten much worse. Much, much worse. worse. How could it be much now, worse? Now they've gone to restaurants and threatened if the restaurants serve me, uh, they won't uh, patronize them. They've warned people if they talk to me, they'll be um, uh, uh, canceled. Um, the library refused to carry my books. Uh, refused to allow me to speak. I threatened to sue them. Finally, they allowed me to speak, limiting it to 25 people. And the book fair, which was supposed to be for Martha's Vineyard authors, and I'm probably the author who's written more books than anybody on Martha's Vineyard, they banned me, banned my books. The synagogue banned me. The synagogue, the Hebrew Center at Martha's Vineyard, which is worse than Temple Emmanuel, the two together, are some of the most anti-Israel and in many ways anti-Jewish institutions in the world of both Temple Emanuel in New York and the Hebrew Center in Martha's Vineyard have banned me. And instead, they have Peter Beinhardt speaking, who denies the right of Israel to exist. No shul should ever do anything like that. They should be ashamed of themselves. So if you're a member of Temple Emanuel, protest uh, or, or don't go there. And if you're a member of the Hebrew Center, the same thing. So what did we do? Obviously, two Jews, three opinions, one Jew, two shuls. We built the second shul on Martha's Vineyard. Chabad. I was among those who started it. Chabad, we had 400 people wow. at a Jewish culture festival the other night. And tonight there was an event. The other night there was an event with Naftali Bennett. It's become an incredibly thriving place. On Shabbos, I get to read from the Torah for my bar mitzvah, Shoftim, 
we have a minion, um, and it's been it's been wonderful. And they're very pro-Israel, and uh, they allow pro-Israel speakers to speak, unlike the Hebrew Center, which basically bans pro-Israel speakers. So, otherwise, I was going to say, why are you still in Martha's Vineyard? But I guess you have the Chabad minion, so that makes it easier and palpable for you to stay there. 53 years. I'm not leaving the vineyard. I came here to defend Ted Kennedy, a Democrat. I defended Bill Clinton, a Democrat. I defended Alan Cranston, a Democrat. I defended Al Gore, a Democrat. But as soon as I defended the constitutional rights of Donald Trump, nobody in the vineyard, particularly in Chilmark, which is, you know, uh, 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 an extremely left-wing, intolerant uh, place. I mean, it... uh, uh, they, they, they accept no dissent, no point of view different from their own. And so I just ignore them. Um, they've made life very difficult for my wife and my children, um, people who my wife have known for years, people who I got helped their kids get into college, kept the kids out of trouble, went down to the police station to defend their children when they got in trouble, never with a fee, represented one guy's father when he had a problem. They all cut me off and canceled me completely. I have to tell you, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Why? Because these were the most boring people. (laughs) It was always a one-way relationship. I was always giving to them, and they weren't giving to me. So now I don't have to deal with them. I don't have to tolerate them. The only thing that I object to, I don't care about the cocktail parties and the dinners. I care about being banned by the library, by the book fair, by the community center, by the Hebrew center. Those places are public institutions and they shouldn't be engaged in cancel culture. Yeah, the Yiddish expression, a numbers niche can give, or a taker is not a giver, which I guess is what you're saying. But let me ask you, I'm sure it bothers you that people you've had relationship with 20, 30 years or more, all of a sudden, because of political situation, uh, you're defending Donald Trump, have cut you off in such a mean and nasty way. What is it with people today? Why can't they have tolerance for people who have other opinions or do things which they don't like? Isn't that the way it used to be? What happened to us? It used to be that way, um, and it still is that way in many places. Um, Many of the people that I associate with, who I disagree with on issues, still maintain a friendship with me. Um, But there's this one crowd of people in in Chilmark, uh, particularly, most of them Hollywood people, most of them extraordinarily stupid, and ignorant, and, and, and they can't tell the difference between representing somebody and supporting them. Uh, and so, um, you know, it hasn't affected me. It's affected my family and affected my children, uh, but it hasn't affected me. But there are a bunch of bullies, and life goes on, and I live by my principles. I've always lived by my principles, and I'm not going to change them for a bunch of Hollywood people. For example, there was a big event uh, not so long ago the Jewish Democrats of Martha's Vineyard. Now, who do you associate with a Jewish Democrat on Martha's Vineyard more than me? Of course, I didn't get invited. And guess what word never got mentioned in a two and a half hour event for the Jewish Democrats of Martha's Vineyard? There was one word that was never mentioned. Let me guess, Jewish. Israel. Israel, okay. Israel was the one word that was never, ever mentioned. And two nights ago, they had Kamala Harris. Um, And of course, I wasn't invited. Uh, it saved me a lot of money. I would have had to give you know, $2,500 to Kamala Harris to attend the event, but I wasn't invited. So um, I give that money now to Hatzala and to Kamra and to um, uh, other Jewish organizations that I, I strongly support.
Because there's a change, though, not just regarding you, the American Civil Liberties Union. And now, uh, listen. You mean I, the ACLU, the Anti-Civil Liberties Union? Yes. They used to, right. They used to be different. American, they used to represent anybody, whether it was Nazis marching in Skokie or other unpopular causes. I may not agree with all the causes they supported, but they supported everybody to have representation. Today, they will only represent people that they like. It's a change and it's not a, a good one. It's- there's a new organization called FIRE, uh, Freedom Foundation for Individual Rights of Expression, founded by my friend Harvey Silverblight and Alan Coors. And uh, they're taking up some of the slack from the ACLU, but they're a small, poor organization. The ACLU has made a fortune from becoming a get Trump organization. Uh, their only goal is to get Trump. They'll do anything to get Trump, no matter what constitutional rights have to be violated. If it's for purposes of getting Trump, the ACLU is on their side. Now, just shifting before we close out, is I've done some program with some prominent lawyers who have stated that a Hasidic Jew, an Orthodox Jew, goes into a courtroom, a federal courtroom, cannot really get a fair trial. They should cut a plea agreement because juries are biased. There's a lot of anti-Semitism out there. I want to get your perspective about that. Well, I think there is plenty of anti-Semitism out there, and every lawyer has to make the decision about whether to plead his client or go to trial. I've taken Hasidim to trial and, and, and prevailed. Um, I did have a former student who was representing somebody, wasn't a Hasid, and my former student wears a kippah all the time, and he asked me for his advice, my advice, as to whether he should keep a kippah on. And I checked with a couple of rabbis and with other friends, and the advice I gave him was, look, when you're in front of the jury, you're not yourself. You are representing your client, and you shouldn't do anything that would in any way uh, diminish your authority and your ability to win. So um, he took his kippah off uh, to make up for it. When I spoke at the French Assembly, I don't usually wear a kippah, but when I spoke at the French Assembly in Paris, I put on a kippah because there were so many people in France that were afraid to wear them that I wanted to symbolically demonstrate that uh, I identify strongly with uh, my heritage. But I the impression that what you did to represent the Hasidim might have been years ago. I think more recent vintage is this thing that's tougher. And I've heard this from it others. Is, no, no I, I agree with you. And uh, therefore, I've sometimes said to prosecutors, look, um, you got to be sure you have a very strong case against the Hasid because you know you have an advantage in, in the courtroom. And sometimes there can be a change of venue or you can select jurors through uh, voir dires that can be more helpful, but you're absolutely right. Uh, look, uh, and, and Orthodox Jews are not the only people who are discriminated against, but they are among the people who are discriminated against, uh, not only by jurors, but by judges. I remember once I had a case where I was arguing, uh, and my father, who was then probably 70, uh, retired, came into the courtroom and he wore a hat. My father didn't, he was a salesman, so he didn't wear a yarmulke, but he wore a hat all the time. He wore his hat in the courtroom. And, and and the judge screamed at him and said, sir, take that hat off. You're in a courtroom. And I stood up and I said, Your Honor, do not talk to anybody that way. You represent the United States of America. This happens to be my father. And he's going to keep his hat on because that's his religious obligation. The judge backed away. But uh, judges can be that way as well. Final question before I let you go. You've told this story numerous times about, I think you went to a Friday night dinner with Dean Griswold. And <laughs> it's one of and my favorite... It wasn't a Friday night dinner. It was like a Tuesday night dinner. Oh, Tuesday night dinner. Okay. Was it, yeah. 
but so I did. I, I his wife had made some roast beef or something. We're at Harvard, Harvard, the dean. At okay. Harvard, it was my first year. I was not yet tenured, and I just ate the vegetables. And the, and the dean called me in and said, "You know, you upset my wife. She worked so hard on the roast beef. Why don't you eat the roast beef?" And I said, "Well, I'm kosher." And she said, "The and 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 the dean said, kosher. What? That's an anachronism. You know, Jews haven't. My Jews aren't kosher. They eat anything. You should go talk to your people." So about a few days later, he saw me in the hall and he said, so I said, well, you know, I spoke to my people and they said, we've been doing it for three, four thousand years. I think we're going to keep it up. So uh, I think I stayed kosher for another uh, several years as a result of that encounter uh, with uh, with the dean. Well, except when you go to Chabad, right, then you have to have kosher at Chabad. I love the food in Chabad. I'll tell you, in Martha's Vineyard. One of the reasons that Chabad is so popular is it has the best food on the vineyard. The Chabad uh, Revitzen makes challah every Friday. It's the best challah the vineyard has ever heard of. So we have, and so the event we had the other day, the cultural event, included Jewish food. And it was remarkable. People on the vineyard had never eaten food like that. We had rugelach and challah, and we had, you know, just great Great stuff, and uh, uh, everybody loved it. You should invite Larry David to come to Chabad for a chance. Yeah, he would. He would never go near anything like that. He's such a self-hating Jew. Alan Avidor, thank you for being here with us, for sharing with us, and continue your strength. And I admire the fact that you're still in the Democratic Party, despite all the things we spoke about. But you're well, we'll see how long we'll see how long that lasts. It's uh, life is full of changes. So we'll do see. I so something in the offing that you might be leaving? No, them? no, no. But if the Democrats step over certain lines, uh, they lose me. And what line so, is that? Anti-Israel is one of them. Uh, that's the most important one of all, and uh, becoming too woke. And they haven't become too woke and too, and they're not moving in that they're as a direction. There, but I'm still giving them a chance. I'm I'm still fighting them on that one. Alan, thank you for being here with us. Thanks. Please welcome the 110th mayor of the great city of New York, Mayor Eric Adams. One of my favorite radio shows. Always good speaking with you, Zev. Take care. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Thank you for tuning in to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast. The pulse beat of the Jewish community. For continuous Jewish programs, hawklinenetwork.com or our 24-hour-a-day listen line at 641-741-0389. For past shows, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms or jewishpodcast.org. Thanks for listening to the talklinenetwork.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You are listening to Talkline Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community.